Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us either for the first time or all over again, whether you're at one of our physical locations today or you're watching on the online site or maybe you're watching this on demand or on a podcast. You may be watching this in Toronto or across Canada, somewhere in North America, maybe South America. You might be joining from Australia, Rwanda. We have people from all around the world joining us. No matter who you are, where, you're, where your background's from, where you are on a faith journey, you're, you're really welcome. Okay, this is week seven in an extended series where we as a local church have been slowing down to walk through unbelief, skepticism, doubt, deconstruction, reconstruction, and the Christian faith. And the goal has always been finding those needed signposts either to start the journey, to do the journey well, to keep going in the journey, making sure not to shipwreck or break in the middle of the journey, and also help others do the same. So I want to dive in where we were last week and remember... We were wrestling down. Did Jesus actually live? And did he actually die? And did he actually physically rise from the dead? In other words, is this the greatest misunderstanding in history? Worst form of that old, old school thing called broken telephone? Is this wishful thinking? Or, or is this actually like conspiracy? Is there proof for any of this? And let me again start where I did last week when I said these words. In the Christian worldview... Faith is not crossing your fingers, closing your eyes, and hoping this is true, and leaping into the dark. Faith means informed, factual trust. In other words, you need experience and you need facts to find truth. See, some of you who are joining us and some of you who belong to the Christian faith, what's really at the heart of your suspicion is this is like Instagram, where you know how you do this. If you're on IG, you do this all the time. You've got your favorite meal in front of you, or you're trying to get a family photo, or you're in some vacation place, if you're still doing that or starting that again, and you take 4.5 million photos, right? And you, you choose one, the perfect one that reflects what you want. It's curated to give off the best thing and you get rid of or ignore all the other broken things or, or the not so nice things or the misshapen things. And a lot of people are like, maybe I think something's going on in the Christian faith, but we think you've curated it so we only see the good thing, not the broken thing, the fake thing, or what are you hiding? Actually, some of you think it's worse than that. Some of you think, I'll use like a 2022 example, this is like a big deep fake project. I don't even know who Tom Cruise is anymore. I go online and I'm like, is it him? Or someone else just taking his face and I, how do you even know what's true anymore? So let's go back to the foundation, the core, the epicenter of the Christian faith. The belief that Jesus physically rose from the dead. And if the physical resurrection of Jesus is true, then everything changes. And if it's not, it doesn't matter. See, this is a big if. Now, this week is built on last week. And of course, these two weeks connect to all the weeks before. Last week, we looked at history. And we asked some questions like, well, what's the difference between science and history? And is history accessible? And what's the rules of accessing history? And can we use those historic criteria to know, did Jesus exist? Can the Bible be trusted as a historical document? Are there other people outside of the Bible that even verify what we find in the Bible? Is there any reputable leader or historian or philosopher that says, yeah, that stuff happened? Was, was there anyone who was not a Christian who said, yeah, Jesus existed. Yep, Jesus was around. Yep, Jesus was killed on a cross. Yeah, he was even buried. Okay, that was last week. Today, we're going to look at some of the biggest conspiracy theories surrounding Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and his empty tomb. 
See, some of you are going, ah, okay, sure. Yeah, Jesus existed. I'm in. Or he lived. I'll give you that. Or maybe he did some really weird spiritual crazy stuff. And maybe he died. And actually, maybe I'll even admit there was an empty tomb. But it's not empty because Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, it's so obvious something else happened. And if you go to the internet, because everything on the internet is true, right, everyone? You will read many, many people say this. Oh, oh, actually, the idea of physical resurrection was everywhere 2,000 years ago. All sorts of religions and cults taught it. And so the claim that Jesus rose from the dead really was just Christians like stealing, hijacking, and borrowing an idea that everyone else believed, and they used it to their own advantage. And everyone back then is stupid anyways. They didn't know the difference, and they all just got sucked in. So theory one, belief that the physical resurrection was everywhere and believed by most people. Answer, not even close. Read scholars, read historians. When Christians started to claim Jesus' physical resurrection, it was absolutely, undeniably unprecedented. Period. Pagans, by the way, did not believe in physical resurrection at all. Greeks and Romans, in their thinking, in their mythology, it is not full of physical resurrection ideas or physical resurrection beliefs. In, in the most recent and massive, the largest study probably on pagan thinking and physical resurrection, N.T. Wright in his book, The Resurrection and the Son of God, concludes this. Lean in. Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was known to be a lie. False. Many believed the dead were non-existent, and outside of the Jewish faith, nobody, nobody, nobody believed in resurrection. Oh, some Greeks or Romans believed in afterlife, in Hades or bliss, but they weren't coming back. And actually, most if not all people, if they believed in an afterlife, some thought it was just done, they didn't want to come back. See, we got to get our heads wrapped around this. For the great golden age of Roman and Greek thinking for a thousand plus years, they actually taught that the physical side of us was bad. It was a prison. It was temporary. The true you, the real you, the essence of you is your spirit. So death was viewed as liberation. And why would you want physical resurrection since that's putting you back in the prison you got set free from? Simply stated, the millions that lived across the Roman Empire over an extended period of time and beyond did not teach, did not believe, did not desire, did not hope for physical resurrection of anybody. Think about it. Acts 17, Paul goes to the center of Greek philosophy in his day he goes to Athens to a place called Mars Hill. It's a small sort of bald hill right across from the Acropolis. If you go to Athens today, you still can see Mars Hill. And he preached on the physical resurrection of Jesus. And what was the response from the Greek philosophers sitting in his day? They said, oh, yeah, we know about resurrection. You're just using our old myths, or we've heard about this in Babylonian literature, and you're just reinter... No. They don't react that way at all. Actually, in Acts 17, 32, when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some of them sneered, laughed, mocked it, stupid. And others said, we want to hear more of you on the subject. No one said, ah, oh, that's an old idea. You're just, you're, re, you're recycling. They mocked it or were interested, but it was new. See, this gets to one of the biggest ideas floating out there in movies, podcasts, and, and books. Jesus' resurrection is just another religious story that everyone sort of held and was adapted by Christians. No, actually, it wasn't. Some of you are a little, bit, a little better well-read are going, well, it might not have been in classic Greek or Roman thinking, but older faiths held it, right? I mean, what about Addis? What about Marduk and, and Babylonian ancient religion? There are religions older than Christianity that talk about their gods rising. Well, yes, and a big no. Read them. 
They never talk about physical resurrection from the dead. They're vague. They're incomplete. They're nothing like the physical resurrection of Jesus we've talked about in depth for weeks. Top Near Eastern scholars, after looking at the possible resurrection connections from the Jesus story to religions found like in Babylonian literature, have concluded that this popular belief that continually gets recycled every five or ten years on the internet is nothing but inference, surmise, guess, and conjecture. It's a false narrative. It's, there's no magnetic link. Others go, okay, fine, John. Maybe not the Romans or the Greeks, but hey, the Egyptians, they talked about resurrection of the dead. And, and listen, it's real simple. The Christians stole Egyptian mythology. Hmm. Well, let's listen to a top scholar interact with that idea. We can note that the ancient Egyptian cult of Osiris is the only, listen to that, is the only account of a God who survived death that predates Christianity. According to one version of the story, and if you're going to do your homework, there are multiple stories. Osiris was killed by his brother, family problems, chopped into 14 pieces, gross, and scattered throughout Egypt. Now the goddess Isis collected them and reassembled his parts and brought him back to life. Unfortunately, she could only find 13 of the pieces. More, however, it is very questionable whether Osiris was brought back to life on earth and seen like Jesus was. Actually, the picture we're given is he is given the status of a small g god in the gloomy underworld. So Osiris, the picture we're getting of Osiris is a guy who doesn't have all his parts, who maintains some weird shadow, shadowy existence of God, and he's the god of the mummies. As uh, the guy I'm quoting, his friend Chris Clayton put it, Osiris's return to life was not resurrection, it was zombification. Further, the hero of the account isn't even Osiris. It's, it's Isis or Horus, their son. This is far different than Jesus' resurrection account where he's gloriously, gloriously risen, prince of life, who's seen by others on earth and then ascends into heaven. It's just, it's not even close. And some of you are like, well... I've read some Roman literature, and I'm pretty sure there is death and rising sort of themes like Jupiter or Hercules and others that rise to heaven on the horse Pegasus. Well, this is why history matters. <laughs> the first real account of a dying and rising god is Adonis. That came out in 150 AD. So the first story in Roman myth of a god rising in any form is written 120 years, oh right, after Jesus' resurrection account. But again, more importantly, pagans did not believe in personal resurrection. The myths did not teach anything close to it. Some of you are like, okay, yeah, but John. Jews believed in physical resurrection, and Jesus was a Jew, and the original disciples were Jews, and all the first Christians were either Jews or converts to Judaism. So when they said that Jesus physically rose from the dead, of course they're going to accept it with no scrutiny at all, because that's a Jewish thing, and they're all Jewish, and they're all in. Not even close to being true. Yes, you're right. Jews are the only ones 2,000 years ago that believed that all people would be physically risen from the dead. And they didn't view, by the way, the body as some trap. But for the vast majority of Jews that did believe in resurrection, there was a small group that didn't, Sadducees. But for those who did, they all agreed it would happen at the end of time, all at once, in the age to come, to every single person that ever existed. 
So when a small group of ragtag Jews start preaching in Jerusalem that only one guy raised was risen from the dead, and the general resurrection hasn't happened yet, and the world's still in pain, and sin, and death is around, and the Romans are still in charge, and no one set the Jews free, it violates a thousand years of Jewish understanding. John, give it to me simple. Okay. The idea of one person physically rising from the dead before the end of time does not exist in Jewish thinking anywhere. Again, that's why N.T. Wright, that British eminent scholar, said that is why as a historian, I cannot explain. I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose from the dead, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Here's an interesting story. So I was born in Oshawa, but I grew up in Ecuador in the 80s, pre-internet. It was a fourth world country, I think, uh, according to the United Nations at that time. I grew up in a volcano. Yeah, I actually did in a large city called Quito, and there was a lot less oxygen, probably up to 40%. Some of you are like, oh, that explains a lot about you. Thanks. But it's interesting. When we wanted to light a fire inside our home, this is what we do. We go to the fireplace. We pile it in the wood, right? You know, the newspaper. And we would douse all of it in kerosene with gas and light it in our house. And it'd be like, poof, and start a little fire. Because there was such less oxygen in the room it wasn't a threat. Now, if I went home today and pulled out a bunch of wood and newspaper in my fireplaces in my home, just outside of Toronto, and doused them with gas and lit them, what would happen? Anyone? That's right, 911, John's dead, the house is burning down, explosion. Here's the crazy thing if you're not making all the connections yet. There's not a little oxygen in the room for this idea, there's none. Jews don't believe what they're saying, Greeks didn't believe it, Egyptians didn't teach it. Like, no one believed, there's no way this could happen. And yet here's the crazy thing. This little thing turns into a forest fire that's still burning today. And oh, by the way, you know how serious it is? We divide history by this. Why is it 2022 today? Because we divide history based on Jesus's resurrection. B.C., A.D., B.C., C.E. Wow. This is why history matters. Within 50 years before and after Jesus's life, there were a ton of Jewish messiahs that came. They said, oh, I'm from God. They inspired revolutions and great thinking, and, and then they died. <laughs> Jewish history is littered with people claiming to be the messiah. But here's what another person wrote. In not one single case, 50 years before, 50 years after, do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero was raised from the dead? They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. Jewish revolutionaries whose leader had been executed by the authorities who managed to escape arrest themselves only had two options. Give up on the revolution or find another leader. Claiming the original leader was alive was not an option unless, of course, he was. Oh, let me just say this again. All the very first Christians were Jews or converts to Judaism. The very heart of the Jewish faith, even today, is there's only one God. He's to only be worshipped. Anything else or anyone else that is worshipped is actually wrong. It's sinful. It's blasphemous. And it's actually the end of true faith. And yet, within months of the Jesus event, hundreds, within two years, thousands, tens of thousands of Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem, in Judea, in places like Samaria, and also throughout the whole Roman Empire, are worshiping Jesus. What? Remember two weeks ago, we talked about the story of Thomas. Jesus appears to Thomas. Thomas doesn't believe anything. He's totally out. And Jesus says to Thomas in John 20, 27, put your fingers here. 
See, see my hands, reach out your hand, put them in my side, stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas, as an Orthodox Jew, looks at Jesus, the Nazarene, whose dad is a carpenter, and says, my Lord and my God. What? Here's the summary. Pagans didn't believe in physical resurrection. Jews were not expecting it until the end of time. All the Christians were Jews or converts to Judaism. And within 20 years, they and then those who join them start preaching and writing public letters and worshiping Jesus as God in flesh and claiming Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead. So what can explain this? Oh, the skeptic says, I know, it's all, it's all based on smoke and mirrors, man. It's a trick, it's a mistake, it's a lie, it's, it's a conspiracy. Fair, let's keep going. There's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. Here's the next one. He only appeared dead. Oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus lived. I'll give you that. And he did some crazy stuff. And Jesus was even put on a cross. But after he was put in the tomb, he only appeared dead, but he wasn't dead. Every, he was probably in a coma. And then he came out and got out of the tomb. By the way, almost every Muslim on earth, over a billion people believe this. They reverence Jesus as an amazing prophet. They even believe he's going to come back and judge humanity. But he never died on a cross. Well, there's lots of problems with this idea. Have, have you researched flogging? Or Roman crucifixion this week? You're like, no. Okay. I'm just going to stay with the flogging. I'm not even going to get to the really bad part. One person says this medically. The injury sustained during scourging or flogging by the Romans was extensive. Blows to the upper back and rib area caused rib fractures, severe bruising in the lungs, bleeding into the chest cavity, partial or complete lung collapse. As much as 125 milliliters of blood would be lost. The victim would periodically vomit, have tremors, seizures, and bouts of fainting. Oh, that all happened before he carried his cross. Uh, and then he is publicly mocked. Oh, right. And then he has spikes put through his wrists and his feet. I love this simple response that John Stott wrote years ago. That after the rigorous, the rigors and pain of the trials and mockery and flogging and crucifixion, Jesus could survive 36 hours in a stone tomb with neither warmth nor food nor medical care. That he could then rally sufficiently to perform the superhuman feat of shifting the boulder, which secured the mouth of the tomb, and I'd add also break the seal that sealed it, and do this without disturbing the Roman, Roman guard. And, and then weak and sickly and hungry, he'd appear to disciples in such a way to give them he, the impression he, you know, he had vanquished death, that he could live somewhere hiding for 40 days, making occasional surprise appearances, then finally disappearing without any explanation. Such naivety is more incredible than Thomas's unbelief. Oh, this leads to theory three. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how Jews dealt with their bodies differently than Romans, Greeks, or Egyptians? Bodies were bandaged tightly from the armpits to the ankles with strips of linen about a foot wide, and then they'd use glue in between the strips of linen and put spice uh, in there to make the body smell good. And we know from the biblical accounts, 75 pounds of spice were used by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea as they wrapped Jesus's body. And then, of course, there was the head turban and then the chin guard that kept his chin up. Theory three, someone stole the body or the disciples stole the body. I mean, this is the very first thing that comes out by those who oppose the Christian faith. Matthew 27, 62, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. 
Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said in three days, I'm going to rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. So take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. Okay, first problem is Romans are guarding the body. These guards were not mall cops, though if you're a mall cop, thanks for what you're doing. This is like, these are the elite SWAT team of their day. And the theory is a bunch of disciples come and take out the special forces of the day. Now that's possible, that happens. But the disciples we know are in deep fear, depressed. They've lost everything they believe in. They're hiding in a sealed room because they themselves are afraid of being killed by the Romans. Okay, well, maybe the soldiers were sleeping and the disciples snuck by the body and, and well, we've got some problems with that because if you read non-biblical sources, um, a watch um, by a Roman standards always usually had four men. Uh, one would take a turn while the others rested or slept. And, and sometimes there was more than four. And not only does the rotation idea bring this into question, but you might not know this, the penalty for a Roman soldier who is on guard to sleep without permission is his own death. So supposing that the disciples either took out the special forces or all the soldiers decided to sleep and risk their own lives. And remember, the disciples are afraid of the Romans. And so anyway, the next problem is the stone. I mean, how could they move a stone without getting the attention of all the guards? And by the way, the average weight of the stone is between one and 4,000 pounds. And oh, you had to break the seal. And by breaking the seal, you're breaking the law. And that's also death penalty. And the real question is, why do it? Like I've already shared, the Jewish faith formally and informally did not believe at all in only one person rising from the dead. And since obviously it's not the end of time, people would have laughed the disciples out of the room for trying to preach this. It's anti-Jewish. And remember, Jesus himself and his followers claimed that Jesus was the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Jewish faith and the king of the Jews. Someone says, well, it wasn't the disciples, it was the robbers. Robbers got the body. You're like, well, okay, so a group of robbers just happened to go to that tomb and they move the stone and they take out the SWAT team and they steal the body. It's hard to imagine. And, and actually the problem with this is some of the biblical accounts of the empty tomb really put this even to a greater question mark. John 25, 20 verse 5, sorry. Uh, John and Peter run to the tomb. It says, John bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there. It does not go in. Simon Peter came along behind him, went straight in the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was lying in its place, separated from the linen. See, if someone had come and taken the body, they would have taken the body with all the linens. Remember, Jesus' body at this point is wrapped tightly with 75 pounds of glue and spice. So, the original disciples run into the empty tomb and there's all the linens with all the glue and spice in its proper place and the body's not there. If someone had stole the body, would have done that. If they wanted to do something really rude or disgusting, they would have unwrapped his body, which of course would have taken a ton of work and all the stuff would be strewn everywhere. But when they run in, there's the strips of linen from armpits down in its place, all the glue, all the spices, that the headpiece is there, the little chin is there and it's like there's nothing, in the, it's like the body just evaporated. 
Oh, and remember, Jesus was executed in Jerusalem and all his post-death post, uh, moments, his post-mortem appearances and the empty tomb are also all publicly pointed to and proclaimed in Jerusalem. So if the enemies wanted to kill this, they'd just go get his body. Some say, oh, no, 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 that's impossible. See, his body would be so unrecognizable. Well, no. First of all, if you produce a body, you'd at least shut down vast amounts of the story. And new evidence has come forward in the last little while. One wrote, the arid climate of Jerusalem, in the arid uh, climate of Jerusalem, a corpse's hair, stature, distinct wounds, would have been identifiable up to 50 days after the person's death. See, the opponents of Jesus, Romans, Romans, Jewish, others, they just need to come forward and produce a body, but they didn't. See, the empty tomb has always been explained away because no one was able to find a body to produce. I love when one world-class scholar on, um, on resurrection wrote this. If your mother says that you're an honest person, we might have reason to believe her. Yet with reservation, because she loves you and she's biased. However, if someone hates you, admits that you're an honest person, we might have a stronger reason to believe what is being asserted since potential bias does not exist. So the empty tomb is attested not only by Christian sources. Jesus' enemies admit it as well. Hence, we're not employing an argument from silence. Rather, rather than point to an occupied tomb, the early critics accuse Jesus' disciples of stealing the body. There would have been no need for an attempt to account for a missing body if the body was still in the tomb. When a boy tells his teacher, my dog ate my homework, this is an admission his homework is unavailable for assessment. Likewise, the earliest Jewish claims reporting Jesus' resurrection was to accuse the disciples of stealing the body, an indirect admission, the body's unavailable for public display. This is, the, this is so important. The only early opposing theory we know that was offered by Jesus' enemies. Uh, next theory. They just went to the wrong tomb, guys. This is just easy. I mean, I, hey, Siri, where's, where's Jesus' tomb? And Siri, by mistake, took you to Port Perry, and he was supposed to take you to Port Hope. You went into Google Maps, and Google Maps screwed up again, and you ended up in the middle of nowhere. No. One wrote, no sources supporting the wrong tomb theory exist. If the women and disciples had gone to the wrong tomb, all the Roman or Jewish authorities would have to do is go to the right tomb, which, of course, they knew where it was, exhume the body, publicly display Jesus, and it would be done. Not a single critic is recorded to have even thought of this explanation for the resurrection in the first two centuries of Christianity. The evidence suggests that the tomb's location was known because a well-known man named Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus in his own tomb. If the burial by Joseph was invention, we might expect ancient critics to state, hey, listen, Joseph denied this version of the story. He didn't do that thing. Or critics would have denied the existence of Joseph if he was a fictitious character, as the person writes. After all, Joseph allegedly was on the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish ruling body in the time of Jesus, and therefore was a public significant figure. Here it is. Instead of questioning the place of the burial, the group resorts to claiming the disciples had stolen the body. All those women, Peter, John, all went to the wrong tomb? Not so much. Remember, James and Saul, we're going to talk about both next week, Peter, John, the women, 500 others, become followers, not just because the tomb's empty. They claim to see Jesus, eat with Jesus, 
touch Jesus, hug Jesus, be forgiven by Jesus, and suddenly they turn into bold preachers of his death and resurrection. Thomas didn't believe. James thought his brother was crazy, mentally ill or demon-possessed. And Paul, who was called Saul, was literally at the killing of the very first Christian and jailing people like me. Theory five. Everyone went down to the local cannabis shop and got high. They went to the forest and picked the wrong mushroom and saw a lot of wild, fun things together. This, by the way, is everywhere on the internet. But actually, it's one of the weakest arguments. One um, Cambridge scholar says this. Psychological medicine itself witnesses against this explanation. Matthew was a hard uh, a hard-headed, shrewd tax collector. Peter, others, tough fishermen, Thomas, born skeptic. They are not the sort of people one normally associates with the susceptibility to hallucinations. Again, hallucinations, this is important, tend to be of expected events. Expected events. But none of the disciples were expecting to meet Jesus again. Hallucinations usually happen over a long period, and they tend to increase, if you do your study on this, or decrease. The appearances of Jesus happen frequently for 40 days and then just stop. Hallucinations don't occur to groups of people all seeing the exact same thing. Yet Paul claims 500 people saw Jesus at once. In any case, hallucinations and the theories connected to them are limited in their scope. They only attempt to explain the appearance. They don't account for the empty tomb, and no matter how many hallucinations the disciples had, they could never preach the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem if the nearby tomb had not been empty. Okay, so you're going, you know what? Fine. It's simple. John, it's a lie. The authors all just made it up. It's conjecture. It's fantasy. It took off. They watched a Marvel film and thought Thor and Loki were real. Like, really? Come on. Well, I love this conversation I read years ago that was invented by a guy named Bernard Howard. He imagined Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talking about how to build this lie together. I want you just to listen to it. Luke starts, boys, let's have another round of drinks. I have an idea I want to run past you. John goes, sure. What's in your mind, Luke? Well, Luke says, well, you've probably heard about that Nazarene named Jesus who was crucified yesterday. I think he's going to be the perfect candidate for our fake Messiah project. Mark says, one tiny problem, he's dead. Luke goes, perfect. Yes, I know. We get to control the narrative. We'll be in charge of his reputation. Matthew says, well, who's going to follow a dead Messiah? We're Jews around here. Luke goes, nobody. So we're going to invent a resurrection myth. We'll hire some thugs, first of all, to fight off the soldiers guarding the tomb so we can get rid of the corpse. John says, yeah, but a missing corpse is not the same as resurrection. Yeah, yeah. And Luke says, I know you're right. So we're going to have to persuade some of Jesus' friends to spend the next 30 years telling everybody he's risen from the dead, even if meaning sticking to the story means they're going to be in prison, murdered, tortured, or killed. And not just them, but family members like wives, husbands, and children. It's going to be amazing. Mark goes, yep, I believe in that. Okay, what's next? Luke says, well, to make a conspiracy credible, we need precise detail. So we're going to invent stories where Jesus interacts with people in very specific loca locations. Matthew goes, well, won't people just disprove the stories by visiting the places and, you know, asking around? Luke goes, no, Matt, there's no, there's no need to worry about that. We could invent a story, for example, here's one of my thoughts, about a synagogue ruler's terminally ill daughter. Let's make it really bad. She's dying. 
and, and then Jesus heals her. Let's give the synagogue uh, ruler a name and we're going to set it all in a particular place and, and no one, still no one, absolutely no one, not even the people that live in that actual place are, are going to do any fact checking. I mean, everyone's just going to swallow the whole story. It's going to work. Mark says, sounds like we're on safe ground. But if we want people to follow Jesus, Luke, I mean, he is going to need an epic message. I mean, people have been waiting for a Messiah for, you know, centuries. He's got to be worth listening to when he finally appears. And John goes, good point, Mark. Good point. I'm going to cook up some really deep quotes, some really deep thoughts. I'll take care of this. Luke says, thanks, John. And Mark, you're right. We are going to need to put profound wisdom on Jesus's lips that theological scholars will ha like happily study for their entire careers. John goes, no problem. I got that in the bag. Luke goes, okay, guys, it's going to take us a while to put these documents together. So we need to get communities of people worshiping Jesus in the meantime. So when our books come out, they're going to have an amazing reception. Mark says, there's this guy I know. His name's Saul. I think he's going to help us out with that. Luke goes, you mean Saul the Pharisee? I, I cannot imagine him getting involved in this kind of project. Mark goes, no, 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 trust me. He's our man. I, see, I see him. Uh, this is going to be amazing. Leaving behind everything he's been trained to do and planting congregation of Jesus worshipers across the whole Roman Empire and, and whatever it costs him personally, beatings and shipwrecks and all that here, and he'll die for it. Matthew goes, that's awesome. <laughs> but Luke, um, can, you, can you remind me what's the point of all of this? I mean, I, I mean, what do we get out of all of this, Lucas? Come on, Matt. It's going to be so much fun. We're going to watch people get brutally murdered and martyred, and we get to know they've been deceived by our dishonest fiction. I mean, what's not to like about that? John says, I agree with Luke. It is definitely worth years of effort on our part. You can count me in. Mark says, yeah, I'm in. Matthew goes, yeah, I have a condition. I'll do it with you, but my name has to come first in the promotional material. Luke goes, deal. Let's get to work. For some of you, you are genuine followers of Jesus. You might be struggling or doing well, but you are committed. And I just want to say to you, your faith is informed trust. It's real. It's based on a real person. He's for you. He's with you. He's alive. What he's done in your life is real. It's not smoke and mirrors. You didn't just cross your fingers. It's real. Be encouraged. Keep going. No matter what the culture says, no matter what's floating in the internet, it's true. Some of you who are really wrestling, really struggling, maybe grew up in the Christian faith and aren't sure anymore, or trying, I just want to say to you, slow down. Really listen to what people are saying. Really do your homework, because the more that you study and the more that you understand and the more you understand when the Gospels were written and what was at stake, the more you begin to realize that this is true. And some of you, skeptical, unbelieving, doubting, wanting to believe and can't, all different ways. I just want to say to you, look, I hope what you're beginning to see here is this is not smoke and mirrors. This is smoke. Where there's smoke, there's fire. This isn't redirect. This isn't a deep fake project or an Instagram uh, redo. There's a lot of smoke. Jesus is the most influential person in history. Over 2 billion people worship him today. Like, there's a lot of smoke, but where there's smoke, there actually is real fire. And next week, we're going to take some time to walk even further on why this shouldn't happen. We're going to talk about the role of women in society. We're going to talk about James, Jesus' half-brother. 
We're going to talk about Saul who became Paul. And then we're going to even talk a little bit about Jesus's own claims. And when you pair his claims, which are audacious and crazy and wild with his character, that even leads stronger to the idea that Jesus is who he claimed and what happened to him is true. That's why uh, Saul, who became Paul, again wrote this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. If you agree with Jesus of what he claimed about himself and you believed in your heart that God raised him physically from the dead, you'll be saved. That, that's when you cross the line of faith and all of this becomes personal. Like I said last week, it's one thing to know about Swiss chalet fries, think about your favorite food. It's another thing that, to hear people talk about it. It's another thing to observe someone eat it. It's another thing for you to experience it. This is the process. It doesn't exist. I've heard it exists. It might exist. I see other people talking about it. I've now seen it. I've now encountered. That's the trajectory of what's taking place with some of you. So let's just pray like this. Number one, thanks Jesus that you are alive, that you're real, that you're, you're hopeful. Your, your life is hopeful and hope-giving. Encourage the many, many, many people listening today that this is true and real and supported and accessible. And you're alive and there's hope beyond this moment. And, and for others, Lord, who are struggling and wrestling and aren't sure, cut through their doubt and cut through some of their deconstruction and begin to reconstruct and build back into this thing. You, <laughs> into Jesus. Begin to repair what's right. It's beautiful, it's biblical. And for other people who are doubting or skeptical or don't believe or want to believe, would you not only help them wrestle out the facts, would you also open their minds? Because you know what, God, you know this about us. Uh, we need you to even help us intellectually engage with the facts to move into trust and relationship. Help people across that line when they can't even do it. Yeah, we look forward to what you're going to do over the next seven days in our life. Uh, whether this is happening now or in years from now, someone's listening to this in those seven days and what's going to happen next week and the week after. Thanks for this in Jesus' name. And we all said, <laughs> amen. Look forward to seeing you next week as we continue to wrestle well through this really significant conversation. See you next week.